Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're looking forward to another wonderful week in the armchair here. Uh, this week, I'm looking to cover uh, a few subjects that I found interesting. Obviously, the counteroffensives in Ukraine, the unfortunate passing of Queen Elizabeth and the ramifications going forward for King Charles, and update on what's going on in Asia vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China and South Korea. You know, with me as always is Garrett. Hello. And I'm looking forward to uh, our discussion today. What would you like to start with? I think we got to start with the Queen's passing. God save the Queen. As the resident Anglophile here, it is with great sadness that we remarked on the passing of a longest reigning monarch in British history, end of an era, and a link she represented to a era of British history that is rapidly fading from memory. An incredible reign, I believe, uh, 15 prime ministers, 14 U.S. presidents, just a length of time that is almost hard to imagine. Absolutely. You know, um, long live the king, uh, I guess. It's uh, It's been interesting. I, you know, of those 14 presidents, I believe she met 13. Some things I read about her that were particularly interesting to me, that she devoted her entire life like to the country. Like there was nobody who really came out that I could see that disagreed with that. But the other part of it that was interesting was, I guess there's two parts that I found. One being her role in cementing that transatlantic partnership. You know, she had very close relationships with some U.S. presidents, like where they always spoke very highly of her and fondly, and it was a pleasant experience for them to go interact with the queen. That is important at those highest levels of politics. And especially for the U.S., we have a very interesting relationship with the monarchy. We have a very interesting relationship with the British monarchy here on this side of the pond. There's a fascination in the media. There's a fascination in the American psyche with the pomp and circumstance of the royals. And that is at no time more evident than when they're in the news during an event like, like this or a coronation or a birth. There's just wall-to-wall -wall media coverage here. And I think it's because it's a, a feature of British society that we, we re rejected, but also a feature of, of society that we don't have uh, anything comparable here. And those close cultural ties that we have with Great Britain uh, makes the British royal family sort of as close as we Americans can get to uh, monarchy. There's other royal families in Europe that, that uh, do not receive the level of attention that the British monarchy does here. But beyond the cultural impact in the U.S., this could be the beginning of a Republican moment throughout the Commonwealth and perhaps in Britain itself. It will be fascinating to see in the 14 countries where the British monarch remains the head of state, how many are left by the end of Charles's reign. Um, we'll have to keep an eye because I doubt it will be 14. And the Republican movement in Britain itself also sees this as a prime opportunity. Charles is less personally popular than the Queen. 
So we could be looking at the end of a institution that has existed in some form in in uh, the British Isles from time immemorial. And are there knock-on effects to Britain's global power economically, politically, diplomatically, strategically as countries that are members of the Commonwealth forego the club of nations that they're currently in and uh, move on to their own regional um, organizations or or leave the Commonwealth altogether. Absolutely. And I think Antigua just um, announced that they're going to have a vote to, to, to go to remove the British monarch as the head of state. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in time uh, Australia – I saw some analysis that the people who really support the British monarch as being the head of state in Australia are older and that it's not popular amongst people under 45. I find it interesting. And this is, you know, this is someone who looking from the outside in and it doesn't cost me anything. Losing it, I feel like we would lose something. It's such a unique thing you know thousand years of reign basically i mean in western society there's no one who has that same cachet but yeah the monarchy has a great uniting uh, power to it uh, as a cultural institution in great britain that is unmatched by any institution in the united states and so an apolitical institution like the monarchy it gets to be above the fray and just act as a great unifying force. One interesting thing that I, I read, I think they were speaking to a woman in London and, and she was obviously sad that the queen had died, but she made an interesting point that resonated with me that she was not just sad that the queen died and everything she did for the country, but the fact that her young daughters weren't going to grow up with a queen and that the next three heirs potentially are male. So it's unlikely in her daughter's lifetime or her daughter's children's lifetime that you're probably going to see a, a female head of state. I had the same thought myself that it was the real, you know, a real end of an era that we wouldn't see another queen on the throne in our lifetime. And if, no, if nothing else, it is... Even though the monarchy is apolitical, it is a political tool when dealing with other countries. Yes, certainly that's true. When when someone's coming in town, if you give them a a meeting with the queen or the king now, um, whatever that is, there's certain cachet that has a lot of value. I would assume it's a showstopper. They have a gold coach. Yeah, exactly. They That's yeah. It can't. I I totally agree with you. I think the the value of the pageantry can't be overestimated. Um, yeah, it's one thing to go to a state dinner at the White House. I think it's another thing to be carried in a golden coach to Buckingham Palace for an audience with his ma- his or her Majesty. Absolutely. Get the personal tour of the Tower of London and see the crown jewels. I mean, it made an impression on John Adams. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, hopefully, you know, just on a personal level, you know, this is, I think, very trying for the royal family. And it's something that 
I think people sometimes forget about, but these people are just regular folks who are trying to like, they happen to be born into this and it can't be easy at times. Yeah. Well, long live the king and, uh, you know, thoughts to the people of Great Britain and the royal family who must be in mourning right now. It's very, that's very sad. Uh, speaking of things going on across the pond, the much discussed counteroffensive in the Ukraine's south and east has been off to a rollicking start, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And in, in, as we discussed in a few episodes, we knew there was going to have to be one at some point. I mean, they, they've been, uh, very adroitly discussing the southern counteroffenses around Kursan. Yeah, they, we very, very clever, those Ukrainians, uh, that was to have a, a faint in the south. But the real punch seems to have been in the north somewhat unexpectedly. I, I would say this completely caught me off guard. One, why try and retake this territory? And I assumed this would be much easier for the Russians to defend. But to the Ukrainians' credit, uh, in in just a few days, they took over a thousand square miles back from the Russians. And and to put that into perspective, that's more territory than Russia has taken from the Ukrainians since April. Because it's uh, according to the Institute for the Study of War, as of September tenth. Uh, Ukrainian forces have captured some 3,000 square kilometers in the five days since September 6th. So it's really it's really a route. Um, the whole northern Russian axis seems to be collapsing, uh, and we are not looking at an orderly retreat. Uh, it, it just forces are fleeing. I heard reports that Russian soldiers are donning civilian clothes, getting in private passenger vehicles, and making for the Russian border. Uh, better to be a deserter than uh, to be fighting in, in this war. But it's it's quite shocking. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. It just, there's a few parts of this, right? Psychologically, this, is got, this has to be crippling for the Russians and elating for the Ukrainians, right? Like, they've been seeding ground, seeding ground, seeding ground. And then when they do go on the offensive, they just break out. And this is the first time they've really gotten past the Russian defensive line and gotten into their rear. 70 kilometers is what I read, into the rear. I mean, it points now they're they're within spitting distance of the Russian border, which is just shocking to me. And then the next thing for me is like, this is actually a very strategic location for them to have done this. Because a lot of the equipment going down into the southern regions of Donetsk and Luhansk and down into the Kursan is goes through that area and exactly. it, it comes from the Belgorod area in Russia and that is just a little bit north of Kharkiv and interesting enough all the, the main roads and rail lines go down there right around the outside outskirts of Kharkiv and Izium in particular we um, many of us heard about this six months ago when uh, Izium fell because it was it was a big rail um, rail line city. I mean, it, it has a large depot. It has the crossing of several rail lines and major roads. 
And so this is a logistical nightmare for the Russians. They have been hit with HIMARS and other systems in their depots, but now this long logistical train that they had coming from the north is going to have to find other routes right before the winter. But I'm sure there's a lot of equipment, and I've been reading that the Ukrainians are running into stockpiles of Russian equipment that was just left. Munitions, yep, abandoned vehicles. Yeah, this is it's a disorderly, chaotic retreat from advancing Ukrainian forces. I mean, uh, really demoralized, undersupplied, undermotivated Russian forces collapsing in the face of determined Ukrainian assaults. And uh, the Russians have really backed themselves into a corner because they cannot, again, they cannot call for mass mobilization. They cannot call this war what it is, a war. And what happens? Uh, it's, not, it's, not a good, it's not a good day to be in the Russian army, that's for sure. Absolutely not. I mean, I saw some, some reporting that this is the first time since World War II where entire units uh, are killed off. Like, not, not like casual, like every member in u- an entire unit was killed. The complete annihilation of, of Russian army units is going on right now in, in Ukraine. So it's really, really shocking. The war has entered another phase. And I think, again, the U- Ukrainians have sort of overturned the conventional wisdom in the in the uh, analysis class and the chattering class that it was going to be a frozen conflict and it was going to be a long slog. And that's clearly not, this is a huge breakout. I don't think that can be overestimated how important it is that this is a, is a true route, a true breakout for Ukrainian forces in the North, in the South, stiffer resistance. I suspect that Ukrainian information operations uh, diverted the strongest and most combat-ready Russian forces into the south to counter what they assumed was going to be the main axis of advance. But instead, that was, it seems, more of a feint, and they they took the majority of their forces uh, to uh, retake the north. And and before we talk the political aspect of this, because there's, there's some interesting ramifications for this that I want to go into more detail on, but by taking this Kar- the Kharkiv area... It really opens up Donetsk and to a lesser degree Luhansk to to continued counterattack because you can attack those regions from their a different axis, right? You're gonna the Russians are gonna have to move troops that were on the western boundaries of Luhansk and Donetsk to their northern boundary to try and defend against the these counter these troops that have basically taken up to the Russian border in some locations and don't seem to be stopping as they continue to expand out in that region. So it'll be interesting now that they've taken Izium, how far do they want to go and how long do they have before the Russians can really get some stiff resistance in there? You know, we might be seeing the very the very first stages of, of an encirclement of Russian forces that are to the east or to the west and the south, um, you know, Zaporizhia, uh, Mariupol, all the way down to the, the Sea of uh, Azov. The Ukrainians are going to be trying to moving towards Mariupol and kind of cut 
this the kind of the land bridge if you could cut it off because you would have to go quite a ways probably 40 50 miles um from the border of the Danex uh oblast kind of where the kursan and janet's oblast meet directly kind of south to hit the sea of azov there but if if troops are available and this is the question what else do the ukrainians have in store do they have more strategic reserves if there w- are they is this like a multi-layered chess game where they're thinking okay we're going to do this the russians are going to respond and then we're going to hit them somewhere else where they are weak if so masterfully played and i think they can take more territory but the big takeaway for me this week has been we continue to overestimate the russians so Kursan, you know, obviously not as much happening in Kursan, but I still expect the Ukrainians before the winter to be able to push the Russians back to the Dnieper River. Um, but I don't think they're really going to get across. But, you know, the, the things that are wild to me, and, and we talked about this a little bit in the break, is if the Ukrainians using fire and maneuver tactics here and, you know, delegating authority on a tactical level, which the Russians don't do, if they can either encircle or they can basically start pushing the Russians up against the river and limit their resupply, you may see either the complete destruction, annihilation of those 20,000 troops, Russians, on the western bank of the Dnieper, or a mass surrender, which I I think in Russia would be even worse. Yeah, I think you're right. And looking at the strategic situation, they've severed ground lines of communications, uh, you know, from earlier, that was their, that had been the groundwork, and then taking as we had discussed taking Izium, how are Russian forces going to continue to be resupplied if they do not have reliable rail transit? This is still a rail-based army in a lot of ways. They do not have reliable truck transport. Um, So moving equipment and material and men without secure rail lines in the rear and, and accessible communications uh, they could just starve this army in the field, potentially. Um, but looking at the map, if I were trying to conduct an envelopment... Absolutely. And what will be interesting is how far they go in this initial breakout, especially in the Northeast. How many troops are the Ukrainians deploying? We kind of have some idea that the Russians... I don't want to say gutted, but pulled out most of their troops from the Kharkiv region. And the Ukrainians are liberating cities that have been held in in some cases for 200 days. And then on the other side of this, you have the Russian government and defense ministry's response about uh, tactical strategic regrouping. I think they, they called it, or at least that was a translation I saw that they are going to regroup and focus on the Donetsk and Luhansk areas, I mean, the Donbass, and that this wasn't a route 
This was, uh, you know, str a strategic move on the Russians' part. Um, I don't think anyone buys that, even in Russia. And I'm starting to see, I don't want to call them cracks, but you're starting to see public commentary basically blasting how incompetent things seem to be handled right now, including by Ramzan Kardyrov. Ah, the our friend from Chechnya. Our friend from Chechnya. Our Chechen, Chechen leader with his 2.4 million Telegram followers. Friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast. <laughs> um, that would be hilarious to get him on. I'm sure he would have some interesting things to say. Um, but at the same time, like, he's coming out and saying, like, I have no idea why this, how could this happen, whatnot, and... You know, people have to explain this. This is something you have to explain to people because this is ridiculous, basically. And I, he gets away with a lot more. But I, I also saw on state news, they had someone, on, you know, some general on saying like, yeah, they broke, it was bad. They broke through our lines. And they were pushing us back. And the news reporters were even flabbergasted. They're like, what do, this is horrendous. Like, how do, what do we even say? the nature of uh, Russian sentiment uh, during this um, force collapse, more important than any sort of Western or Western-aligned criticism of the Putin regime is, is nationalist criticism of the Putin regime, which we are seeing quite a bit of this week. Uh, lots of chatter in the Russian mill blog sphere uh, military bloggers talking about what an embarrassment this is, how this is a tragedy, how it's unacceptable that uh, the government celebrated the anniversary of the founding of Moscow this week, founded in 1147, I believe. They celebrated with fireworks and concerts and a lot of commentary on how what a bad book that was. While Russian, the Russian army is in almost complete retreat in northern Ukraine. Uh, the government is celebrating the founding of, of Moscow. So this is going to be a real issue for Putin um, going forward, that there is continued pressure on the right and continued pressure in the nationalist quarters to declare a full mobilization, to make this a, a total war effort. And... How long can he resist those calls? What will it mean for the rest of the country when, uh, if and when a full mobilization is called for? Uh, is there the potential for the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons? Um, these are all sort of out, outstanding questions that if this becomes a matter of his survival, uh, the, and his regime's survival, if this becomes existential, we, I don't think we know what he's capable of doing. It's true. This kind of opens up the, the can that I think the West in particular was focused on when this war started. What, if we provide too much support, what's going to happen? And we're, we're kind of in that situation now where, I mean, look, there, there's a counteroffensive. I, I was reading that U.S. support, especially on the intelligence sharing side, has been ramped up. And 
we, to a certain degree, um, are able to kind of tell the Ukrainians where all the Russians are. And when the Russians utilize that Soviet-style massive single depot approach for areas, that has to be crippling. I don't know. Like, he's going to have to respond. And it did look pretty bad. He brought up today, or it may have been yesterday, the um, the strategic regrouping in Kharkiv during that celebration for, you know, Moscow's whatever. I forget what, how old the city is actually, but it makes you wonder, could there be enough political pressure at some point that something has to be done? I, I mean, I've read that he basically has about 45% of the population that are firmly in his camp and he has another 25% that are generally pro-government and then everybody else who is generally either on the spectrum of against him to indifferent but people are still allowed to leave the country so he doesn't have that pressure building up to the same way that some countries would because people who really don't like his views younger more educated folks they leave and the people who are particularly fervently supporting of this this war and view it as really protecting Russian speakers around the world, they live the country. These are people whose lives really aren't affected. He's not we have to remember Putin's not a military figure. So he likes to act like he is a military person, but he was not. He was a spy. He was a spy. And a junior, pretty junior spy. And a, yeah, not very good spy at that. So he, at some point, completely distrusts his own military. What is he going to do? Like, he's not, he doesn't have that many more levers to control kinetically what's going to happen. And it's not like he can build a new army in, you know, a month or two to go attack and counter while the Ukrainians are continuing to build up and push forward. And there's going to be this back and forth. I think the Ukrainians, if they keep this counteroffensive going, the upswelling of support in the West is going to be pretty, pretty significant. I think that this war is lost for Russia, certainly. Um, and it's now just the degree to which it is lost. They are going to be unable to achieve their stated goal at the beginning of the conflict, which was the destruction of the government in Kyiv, um, the eradication of the idea of Ukraine as a sovereign state with a unique heritage and culture separate and apart from Russia, and to bring that nominally independent nation into the full sphere of Russian influence. Those, they, that, that's, those, those things are impossible to accomplish now. And the expansion of NATO, yeah, arresting the expansion of NATO. That so that all, all of those war aims have failed. So now it is just a bloody game of uh, least bad outcome for Vladimir Putin, which may come down to the least bad outcome is I don't get um, removed and murdered from my position of power. Uh, and so it, I think it has become a real existential question. 
Um, where we go from here in terms of political pressure in Russia, I'm not sure. The Russian elites still very much firmly behind Vladimir Putin. And there's no sense of any transition. There's no, there's no even roadmap. At least the Soviet Union, there was a Politburo and a standing committee, and there were other people involved with other levels, levers of power and other interests. And there was a process. So the leader, the general party secretary died or needed, was removed from office. There you knew there were other people that were prepared to fill that role. In Vladimir Putin's Russia, there is no heir apparent. So it, it is, we, we, I think in the West need to begin to contemplate what does a post-Putin Russia look like? Who are the people that are going to be in charge? How does this, how, if Ukraine wins, which I believe now is probably inevitable, what does them winning look like? What do we need to do now to lay the groundwork for a successful Ukrainian victory and post-victory world. Uh, Anne, Anne Applebaum wrote a, an excellent piece in The Atlantic yesterday, uh, which lays out a lot of this stuff. I recommend anybody who's listening who hasn't read it to go read it. Uh, friend, friend of the pod, Anne Applebaum, a huge fan of her work. And this is uh, up to her usual excellent standards. So yeah, very, very dicey stuff. Uh, but to, to get back to your original question, um, unless and until something dramatic changes for everyday Russians and for the Russian elites themselves, I don't think he is in danger of being forcibly removed. Uh, but this a major battlefield defeat uh, and continuing isolation on the world stage. You know, maybe that does change some minds. Maybe it does create an opening for uh, him to be removed. Not sure. Time will tell. Agreed. And then, <clears throat> you know, the next stage for me thinking about this is what are the... I don't want to call them red lines because this it brings up what I think are somewhat cowardly views and that some some European uh, political groupings were pushing forward about, you know, we need an off ramp for Putin and we can't beat him too badly because that's somehow um, it makes him look bad. And that's he's beaten himself, though, <laughs> like we're, we're not beating him. That's my view. Obviously, there are political forces in, in Europe who viewed it a little differently. I, you know, and I, I have a feeling they didn't ask the Ukrainians, do you want to give up Crimea and the Donbass? Because, you know, it, Putin will be sad if you, you, you fight and destroy his army. But to, the, to your point, we're, they're not going to, the Ukrainians aren't going to finish this off before winter. But Let's say they do continue to push forth and they take some piece of Luhansk and some piece of Donetsk. Russia, through the winter, is going to be sitting there saying like, okay, we don't have 
they can't say they have the Donbass anymore, right? Like they can't say they have that. And the Ukrainians after this, they're going to be politically more riled up. Like this isn't going to be, yeah, let's negotiate for anything that involves giving up territory. They're going to say, no, we're going to just going to keep fighting this until we have Crimea, we are on the Russian border, and we are strong enough and we've destroyed enough of Russians that you're never coming across that border ever again. The Russian or the uh, not the Russian, the Ukrainian foreign minister this I think this week, maybe yesterday or the day before, explicitly stated that the uh, the Ukrainian position vis-a-vis peace negotiations is a restoration of all of the territory taken by force since 2014, which would include Crimea, as well as full war reparations and war war crimes trials. That's now their position on any peace negotiation. They've they've staked out a, I think, very reasonable, but also very much a maximalist position. It's going to be the equivalent of whose warship are these negotiations on? Is that warship in there, you know, the Bay of their capital type type thing? I I think it will be interesting. And, you know, you didn't mention the Russians looking to buy uh, munitions from the North Koreans in in vast quantity that I read about. And and when your president is saying, you know, we, we're shifting to the east. You know, we are the, the Rus people who came from the west we don't like that part anymore. You know, we're really focused on our culture. We're really focused on where we came from. This is what this war is about. But you know what? Like, actually, no, that's not that's not what we're going to do. We're going to go east. We're going to go be a second class citizen in the east and and ship our, our natural resources to folks who don't need to buy them directly from us. Like there's. I'm shocked at times that more Russians don't look at this and think like, this is so bad. It's not going to get better anytime soon. We need to make a change. Speaking of going east, let, let us go east. Let us go far east, as far east as we can get to the land Marco Polo discovered, China. Um... Yeah, so China, uh, always an interesting topic to cover. Nothing specific happened this week, but uh, I think part of the our ongoing coverage of this interesting time in Chinese politics, uh, many millions of people in China still locked down under COVID restrictions, uh, you know, economic difficulty. NG still planning, most likely, to stand for a controversial third term as the paramount leader of the CCP and the Chinese government and the Chinese military. Xi Jinping uh, is looking to enshrine himself alongside uh, Mao as a principal architect of the Chinese society and the Chinese uh, the future of the Chinese state. So uh, I wanted to discuss that with you, as well as the 
turbulence uh, that we maybe foresee ahead for uh, China. Absolutely. And I think I think he's Secretary General. Secretary General of the Chinese Communist Party? I I think. Um, this is this is an interesting ongoing subject. There's nothing as you mentioned, nothing really this week that sticks out other than the fact that large cities still are in lockdown. And the idea that you know, with this upcoming party meeting, they are unwilling to move away from zero COVID. It's politically infeasible to make that step. Well, it's what happens when the the great leader uh, ties himself so closely to a specific policy to back off of it suggests that they uh, didn't did their policy was not correct and they can't without facts changing on the ground that can't happen also this is really interesting uh the vaccine uptake in china while i think better than in the united states uh is with a has largely been with a homegrown vaccine which is not nearly as effective as the vaccines available to us in the west as a result, um, there is continued uh, there's a continued lack of immunity in the Chinese populace because they just have less effective vaccines and a larger population, so they're harder to vaccinate. So there's a continued problem. Facts aren't going to probably change on the ground that allow the government to back off of the zero COVID policy, even though it's clearly become counterproductive, much in the same way as the one-child policy, which took a decade or two before the Chinese Communist Party would reassess whether or not that was a, a, a continued of continued value. So, and then when they now push to have more than one child, uh, there's no uptake. People people are viewing and they're running into kind of the the wealth trap, right? As as country the middle income trap, middle income trap. They they uh, don't want to. They want to give the best to their one child as the everything gets more expensive. So. It's it's going to be interesting, and you know this general nationalistic push that I think is part of Xi's internal. Um, it's really meant for an internal audience. It's it's not meant for his kind of for the world, but I think it's one way he riles up support at home because he's saying things that that make people internally, you know, kind of agree, and it's. It's tough because they they whip up this nationalism, but they don't have all the levers to 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 release that pressure. And I have a feeling that if they keep the one they keep the zero COVID policy in place, and it really gets painful for after a while, what's the outlet? It, they're going to need something, and I'm I'm hopeful that it's not. You know, a strike on Taiwan or something with one of the you know, some sea alterca- altercation out at sea, or you know, potentially with the Indians. It it's interesting. Like there's tumultuous times in a lot of Asia right now. Um, new governments in South Korea. You know, uncertainty 
in 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 China and really a North Korea declared nuclear state. Yeah, I, I find that. I mean, I laugh. I mean, they they sit around and think, oh, we haven't been in the news recently, and and all the international aid organizations are focused on the rest of the world, and we need help. So uh, let's rattle the saber and see what you know comes out. But with the new South Korean government, I don't think they're going to get anything. They're going to get probably increased disp- defense spending in South Korea, and they've gotten the resumption of massive U.S. South Korean military drills. So, uh, you know, it's not going to, I think at least under this current South Korean government, there's going to be no sunshine policy. No, I think you're right. But the, you know, in China, you ask what's, what is the lever that's going to release some of this pressure? I think Xi is temperamentally ill-suited to the moment. I think he uh, lucked into his position. I mean, he is a classic example of nepotism within the Chinese system. Uh, His father, a very famous propagandist for Mao, uh, he he got in trouble at least once, maybe twice, for his mother uh, sending letters asking for high party officials to do him a favor and place him uh, on the ladder to uh, political good fortune. So he's not, he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder, I think, from that. And he is not, you know, he's not Deng Xiaoping. He's not, uh, he's not um, Wen Jiabao. He's, he's a different kettle of fish, as it were. So we're, um, I'm not sure that he, he's, he's very thin skinned and he's very resistant to expert advice and he's very doctrinally Marxist. So ill-suited to the sort of market reforms that might be necessary to ensure continued stable growth. Um, Very hesitant to reverse policies that clearly outlive their usefulness. Zero COVID being the most prime example. Um, and obviously has an appetite for potential military, military adventurism across the Strait of Taiwan. So it is going to be a, an interesting few years in the Far East. I hope that the U.S. government is ramping up what supplies it can deliver to uh, Taiwan, because the time to arm them is now. It's not it because it will be almost impossible to get them supplies once a cross strait invasion begins, if such a thing would ever to happen. So we need to make them a prickly porcupine today. I think that's especially true in light of the Russians' assault on Ukraine. These things can happen, and they can happen very fast, much faster than we would be able to ramp up meaningful supplies. Um, and they they have a uh, purchase program with the Pentagon that Taiwanese do, but they do not have the um, the preferred finance agreement with the Pentagon that some of our other allies do, where uh, basically they buy on credit from the Pentagon material. Uh, so and and they have I think they have a it's a six year wait. Uh, for until the, all the orders they've already put in with the Pentagon will be delivered. You know, I think we really need to look at 
how we can speed that along and and get them the sorts of supplies that would would be most effective not these kind of show supplies not f-22s and and m1a1 tanks like an abrams tank and a and a fighter jet are not going to be the most effective instruments with which to deny the chinese the ability to assault the island do we need more aerial aerial denial weapons more missiles more mobile artillery more shells more javelins more drones um and make the island a, a stronger fortress because that's the only thing that will probably deter uh, uh, the Chinese when the time comes. I, I absolutely agree. It's as we've learned with Ukraine, if we had given them just one tenth of the supplies we've given them since the war started, the first few days of that war would have been very different. You know, just just the financial support we provided them, let alone the weapons, if they had been able to ramp up their military from 2014 to 2022, uh, I think that could have stopped this potentially from occurring. Um, obviously, the supply of high-end technology or even just political maneuvering with the European Union I think would have changed the calculus. Taiwan is a bit different in that sense. Like it's with the one child with the one China policy, you have the mainland who has to, in their mind, retake it to be legitimate in some way. I don't know. I don't understand the thought process considering the Communist Party has never controlled it. And the one China policy is really a fictitious agreement. I mean, people forget Taiwan had the vote at the UN for a long time. That's that's why the South Korean, you know, the South Korean military command there is under UN auspices and will never change because at the time when this was voted through in the Korean War, the Chinese either I forget if they abstained or they voted along with the U.S. and France and the United Kingdom. And at the time, uh, the Soviet Union had, I believe, abstained or they failed to send a representative for those meetings. So you end up with this military command that's under U.N. auspices that fought China at one point, uh, who is now, you know, has a vote on on on. The Security Council, and I just – you couldn't write this stuff, right? Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's – you know, the curse of, you know, I hope you live in interesting times while we're all living in it. Very interesting times indeed. We will see what happens in Ukraine over the next week, and we'll see what other – interesting news pops up between now and the next time we talk once again i want to thank everybody out there for joining us today on uh, armchair journals and we'll see you again next week